service, and we'd love to have you back. We're going to have singing this afternoon, I believe, at 1230. Is that correct, Brother Billy? So I want to encourage you to come back for that as well. Very thankful for the opportunity that we've had to worship thus far. Our prayer is that God would bless each of us in our worship to Him. We're grateful for all the many blessings and favors that we enjoy in Christ. The passage that was read a moment ago, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Paul, the writer there, knew something about the indescribable gift bestowed on the human family through the death of Jesus. If you look at the life of Jesus, one of the things that really stands out, Jesus Christ understood his mission in coming to planet Earth. And so we're going to talk about that in a moment. I do want to just mention one thing. I meant to say something about Fred and Dorothy being here this morning. Thought hit me just a moment ago. We're glad to have Jared's parents with us. We're always thankful to have them. Appreciate the good work that they do, and we're thankful for the work they do in Newton and the opportunity that we have to be a part of that work. And so always glad to have them. All right, let's talk for a minute or two about God's indescribable gift. Paul lived a Christ-centered life. Everything about the life of Paul was, again, Christ-centered. You remember when he wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 at verse 2, Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To the church at Philippi, Paul would say, for to me to live is Christ. In Colossians chapter 3 at verse 4, again, Paul would say, For Christ, who is our life, to the saints that lived in the region of Galatia. Again, Paul would say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul was a self-described persecutor, blasphemer. He indicates to Timothy that he had been a haughty, insolent man, throwing his weight around. But he said all of that he did ignorantly in unbelief. When the Lord appeared to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul was intent on destroying those who were followers of the way. And yet his life radically changed. When you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, Reflecting upon all of the things that he did, everything that he did, the motivation behind it was love for the Lord. No wonder then when he wrote to the church at Corinth in his second letter, he could talk about that indescribable gift that had been bestowed upon the human family, gifted in the name of Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God. Let's just think for a moment or two about the life of Jesus. The one that was indeed that indescribable gift. Unspeakable, as some translations say it. Number one, let's talk about the virgin birth of Jesus. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, you have the unveiling of God's redemptive plan following the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. They had been explicitly instructed not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
The reason was, God said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Well, chapter 3 informs us of the grim reality of Adam and Eve succumbing to the overtures of the devil. As a result of that, death became a reality in the human family. They began to die physically because they would be driven from the garden, preventing them access to the tree of life. But they also died spiritually. A separation occurred between them and their Creator. The announcement of the promised seed was to provide a mediator between the human family and the Father in the form of Jesus. And you can trace that seed line of Genesis chapter 3 throughout the Old Testament. But you remember some seven centuries before Jesus came to earth, Isaiah foretold of the virgin birth. He said, Behold, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. In Matthew chapter 1, we have a record of the gene genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That seed line going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. But you remember in Matthew chapter 1, there's a term that is used 39 times. The word is begat. In verse 2, Matthew said that Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Judah and his brothers and so on. A little bit later, though, the Bible would tell us that Jacob begat Joseph. Now note, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, called the Christ. Why the change? Well, because the birth of Jesus was not a typical biological birth. The Bible tells us that the angel told Joseph in a dream that that which had been conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit. Luke would say that the power of the Most High would overshadow her. And she would bring forth a son. His name would be called Jesus, for He would save His people from their sins. Matthew then goes all the way back to Isaiah and connects that prophecy to the birth of Jesus. He said, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated or interpreted God with us. You need to understand something. Jesus was not born of the Virgin Mary to be the Son of God. But rather, He was born of the Virgin Mary because He was the Son of God. Mary was His earthly mother. But God was His heavenly Father. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer goes back to the book of Psalms in Psalm 40. And he talks about 
the incarnate Christ. He said, a body you have prepared for me. The significance of that birth. Now, tomorrow we will celebrate, many of us will celebrate Christmas. I'm very grateful for all the attention that is given to Jesus and to His birth. Christmas is not a religious holiday. Now, it's a secular holiday, and I'm grateful for it. I'm thankful for the opportunity to get together with family and friends and celebrate time together, exchanging gifts and so on. But we're not commanded to remember the birth of Jesus. As a matter of fact, we don't have a date for His birth. Historians say that in all probability He was born either in the spring or in the fall. Nothing is said in Scripture. That's just a myth that He was born December 25th. Now, if you want to celebrate Christmas and enjoy festivities with your family, I think that's a wonderful thing. But we are commanded to remember His death. We don't remember His birth. We don't remember His resurrection, though certainly all that is implied in His death. The two biggest religious holidays in society are Christmas and Easter. But we're not commanded to remember either one of those in the Scriptures. But we are commanded to remember the death of Jesus every first day of the week. Now there would be no Calvary if there were no birth. And there would be no birth if there were no Calvary. We're grateful for that indescribable gift that the Apostle Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Number one, the virgin birth of Jesus. It's indisputable. But number two, let's just think for a moment or two about His virtuous life. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's something that stands out time and again. There were religious leaders in the first century that were intent on destroying Jesus, much like the Apostle Paul prior to his conversion, known as Saul. But they sought to, just about at every corner, to either entrap or ensnare him. They sought to trip him up time and again. When they came to Jesus, as recorded by Matthew in chapter 19, and asked that question, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? The purpose behind asking that question was not one of sincerity, but rather they sought to tempt him, to ensnare him, to entrap him. And Jesus answered their question. But nonetheless, when you look at the life of Christ, what stands out to you? His life was remarkable, wasn't it? Now, one of the problems that we have on planet Earth is called sin. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're not born sinners, but we are born into a world of sin. Now, the word sin means a missing of the mark. John said that those who sin violate the law of God. They transgress the law of God. But sin is a reality. Ezekiel said that the Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, he would say, The soul that sins shall surely die. 
But what about Jesus? Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Him who knew no sin. Remarkable, isn't it? Jesus lived, what, 33 years upon planet Earth? Though they tried time and again to pin something on Him, they couldn't do it, could they? When He stood before Pontius Pilate, and again, their intent was to destroy Jesus, Pontius Pilate three times said, I find no fault in this man. Oh, they tried to pin a lot of things on him, but they couldn't do it. Now, the Bible says in 1 Peter that we have an example that we should follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Now, listen to what he said. Who did no sin, neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth. John said many, many years ago, that Jesus came to destroy sin, to deal with sin. But in verse 5 he said, And in Him there is no sin. The Hebrew writer would say in chapter 4 verse 15, that we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who has been tempted in all points like as we. Now listen to him, yet without sin. Jesus was, as Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, He was the just, dying for the unjust. That would be us. The Lord Jesus was that perfect sacrificial lamb. Peter would say that Jesus was a spotless lamb, without spot, without blemish. When John the Baptist saw Jesus on one occasion, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's answer to sin was Jesus, the Son of God. The shedding of His blood has provided us with hope. So number one, the virgin birth of Jesus. Number two, the virtuous life of Jesus. But number three, the vicarious death of Jesus. The word vicarious simply means a substitute. And what the Bible says is that we should have died. Paul would write, the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is separation from Almighty God. But Jesus answered the call of the Father, didn't He? You remember in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, the Bible talks about the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God had a plan to redeem the crown of His creation before He ever laid the foundation of the world, before He ever created us in His own image and likeness. He had a plan in place. That's why in Genesis chapter 3, following the fall of Adam and Eve, God immediately began unveiling that redemptive plan. That's why Paul would say, Him who knew no sin... He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Again, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter said that Jesus bore our sins in His body on the cross. Now you just think about that for a minute. 
A moment ago, we observed the Lord's Supper. The unleavened bread reminds us of the body given in our stead. In Isaiah chapter 53, one of the mountaintop passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah said, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. Now listen to Him. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Do you know why you have hope today? Because of Jesus. Do you know why you have the opportunity to enjoy eternal life? It's because of Jesus. Do you know why you have an answer to the problem of sin in your life? Again, it's Jesus. He is that lamb slain. Matter of fact, when you go back and you look at that body that was given in our stead, offering not just the body, but also His precious blood. Peter said, we've been redeemed, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but rather with the precious blood of Christ. Now you just, again, pause for a minute. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, the fruit of the vine, reminding us of the shedding of His blood on Calvary. The prophet said many years ago in the book of Zechariah, in that day, a fountain shall be opened for cleansing. I'm talking about the blood of Christ. Jesus said in the institution of that memorial feast, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission, that is for the forgiveness of our sins. Paul in writing to the church at Ephesus said, it's in Him that we have redemption through His blood. Jesus bought us back, didn't He? Redeemed us. And the cost was His blood. John in the Revelation said unto Him who loved us and washed us, or some translations say, loosed us from our sins. How so? In His own blood. The Bible talks about those who are in sin, but they're in bondage to that way of life, that they are in essence, they're a servant to that way of life. But Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. Well, how does He do that? By His blood, by the cleansing power of His blood. Where would we be without the cleansing power, the blood of Jesus in our lives? And listen, because of His cleansing blood and the fact that we have appropriated that by obeying the gospel, doesn't mean that we do not continue to need access to that blood. That's why John said if we walk in the lights, He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of His Son Jesus, what does it do? Cleanses us from all sin, keeps us in a covenant relationship with the Lord. Now there's a, another point we want to talk about. We've looked at His virgin birth, virtuous life, his vicarious death, but what about His victorious resurrection? His death would have been in vain had He not been raised from the dead. The resurrection is pivotal to the Christian religion. Really, everything stands or falls on the basis of that. 
those women that went to the tomb the first day of the week, they were met by angels, weren't they? And they said, you seek Jesus. He's not here. He's risen. Come see the place where He laid. Jesus talked about His death, burial, and resurrection. In John chapter 2, it was Jesus who said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He wasn't talking about the temple that they worshipped in, but rather He was talking about the temple of His body. The Bible says that Jesus was raised for our justification in Romans chapter 4. Paul would say he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul makes the case for the resurrected Christ. He speaks of those apostles that saw Him visibly. And then he makes reference to himself as an apostle who saw the resurrected Lord. He mentions those 500 witnesses or above 500 witnesses that laid claim to the resurrected Christ. Now, if you look at the book of Acts, one of the real things that is significant in those chapters provided to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the preaching and teaching of the apostles in the first century, they accentuated Jesus, His death, burial, but also His resurrection. I would submit to you today, they would not have died for a hoax, would they? Time and again, when they were commanded not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus, their response was, we cannot but speak the things we've seen and heard. In chapter 5 of the book of Acts, they were beaten. The apostles commanded not to preach or teach in the name of Christ. And yet the Bible says daily in the temple and from house to house, they cease not preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. They were preaching the Lord publicly and privately. Why? Because they were convicted that they were serving the risen Lord. And the implications of that to us today. Jesus was the first fruits of those who died, pointing to a greater harvest. And Peter said, based upon the resurrection of Jesus, we, that is us, those who belong to Christ, we have a living hope, an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, fades not away. He said, it's reserved in heaven for you. How so? Made possible by Jesus and His resurrection. There's a final point I want to share with you. The vowed return of Jesus. Jesus talked about His return one day. That's why emphasis in Matthew chapter 24 was on watching. You don't know the day nor hour. You don't know the time when the Lord's coming back. He'd come as a thief. When the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven spoken of by Luke in Acts chapter 1. You remember two angels said to the apostles, this same Jesus that was taken up from you shall so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. 
Here's what Peter said, and Peter was an inspired apostle. And Peter writes that the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will be dissolved with a loud noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat, and the earth and the works therein will be burned up. A moment ago we sang about the return of Christ. The Apostle Paul said that Jesus would descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. Can you imagine? One day when that trumpet sounds and the Lord Jesus Christ appears in the, appears in the heavens, the Lord Jesus will come again Take us home to be with God. That's going to be a great day, isn't it? To one day be with God in heaven. To be with God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the redeemed of all ages. Imagine if you can, sitting down and talking to the prophets, and talking to some of the people that you've read about and studied about and admired in days gone by. To be in the presence of Jesus, the Son, the Lamb. What a day that'll be. Now I can't fully fathom God becoming man in the flesh. Can you? You know, the Apostle Paul said that Jesus emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. Jesus leaving the glories of heaven to come to earth, to live among mankind, to redeem us. No wonder. No wonder Paul said, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Nothing compares. Nothing will ever compare to what God has given us in the form of a Savior. Again, you go back and look at Matthew chapter 1. And it was the angel who said to Joseph, that Jesus would save His people from their sins. Now I want you to know something about the good news of the gospel. The good news is you might be in sin today. Personally, Jesus came to save you, individually. Had you been the only person to have ever lived, the Lord would have come and died for you. That's personal, profound. Well, what would you need to do to just become one of His children? To enjoy the benefits and blessings of His body and blood? Well, you have to obey the gospel. You've got to put your faith and trust in Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. To recognize that Jesus is the God-man. And then to be moved to a penitent state where you say, you know what, I'm done with that old way of life. I'm not going to live like that any longer. 
I know it was because of my sin that Jesus went to Calvary, and I'm willing to die to that old way of life. And then I'm willing to confess before others that I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Son of God. But I'm not finished. No, the command on Pentecost Day was to repent and be baptized. That's a coordinating conjunction there. Repentance and baptism connected to the forgiveness of our sins. Now you want to talk about the impact of His death? What's the worst thing you've ever done in your life? What's the worst thing you've ever done? Is there anything in your life that deep down you are ashamed of? You really don't want anybody to know about it. Maybe some do know about it. And maybe you're saying, you know what? Because of where I am, there's just no way God would forgive me. Now you need to understand God will forgive any sin and all sin. The Hebrew writer said, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness. Their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Did you know that God will remove all your sins? You know there are things that we've all done that we're not proud of. But when we're baptized into Christ, we come up out of that water a new person. That's what Paul said. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. You can start all over again. You got a, you got a clean slate. And you have the hope of life eternal before you. Now, you know what? There, there are a lot of bad things going on in our world. And quite frankly, there's some things that are going on that I just don't have a lot of hope in seeing how they're going to be turned around. But I know this, in Christ you got hope. You have real hope. And you know what? If you're here today, and let's say you've obeyed the gospel, but your life's not what it ought to be. God still loves you. Never quit loving you. Never did. I know that there are some people that have the idea that God's love for us is contingent on how we live. That's not right. That's not true. No, Paul said, when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. God still loves you. And God still wants you to be saved. The Bible says, God's not willing that any should perish. I want to ask you a question. Are you among the any in that passage? You are, aren't you? But you can be forgiven. You can be back in fellowship with God today. That's the beauty of Christianity. John said, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us, listen to Him, from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God's indescribable gift was Jesus. Won't you come to Jesus today as we stand?